off season, there's reason to believe this year will be better than the last. More McSorley, while I think that we It's one more year of Micah Parsons, and it's one more year of Ricky Slate. And State goes out and wins 15 games. That would be great. Na 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 Hi everyone, welcome to this edition of War Lions Radio. It has been um, a long, long, long time, but we're back. Uh, we're here to get you ready uh, for the Penn State football season. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, joined by my co-hosts. Uh, first, Nick Polak. Nick, uh, you had an eventful summer. How you doing? I did. I'm doing wonderful. How are you? No, well, t- tell the folks why you had an eventful summer. The, pe- the, the people like us, they view us as family. I hope not. Um, yeah, so let's see. Back in May, I found out that I got a new job working for a company called Dreambox Learning. Um, if you have elementary school aged children, it's possible you've heard of it. It's an online math program that you should definitely um, use. It's um, really is a great program. But I found out that I got a job uh, working for them. So. I am no longer a classroom teacher as of the second week of July, this past this past July. So I moved out here to Seattle, where they are based. I actually live um, just south of Bellevue, so not quite within uh, the limits of Seattle, but only about a 15-minute drive. Um, so yeah, this summer I drove across the country in a 20-foot U-Haul with my car uh, hitched up on the back and we had like 13 hour days of driving for like five straight days and we stopped and stayed one night at our other podcast hosts host tonight's house so that was fun and that other podcast host mr matt DeBear. matt your um summer was not nearly as eventful correct uh not nearly as eventful as nick's no i i had to host nick and and his lovely wife holly and and his awesome dog blitz that was we've just now recovered i think from that visit the the like six hours they were here or something like that there yeah something i i I was expecting like details on what made that visit a little bit you know, so horrible, but I, I suppose well, that I will know. We'll I, just leave I, it I, at. I was going to say, Nick that, mentioned he was driving a, a big truck. It, it took Nick a lot longer to get to, to the Michigan, uh, Detroit, Michigan area that I live in a truck than he thought it would. Yeah. I learned a lot about the roads in Michigan, and oh my. I zero interest in ever driving in that state again. Well, I bet that they're going to hire Josh Gaddis to fix all that. But sorry, we'll save that for later in the podcast. So today, uh, what we're doing is we're going to we're a bit rusty on the whole podcast thing, as you can guess, because we haven't done one of these since the last Bush was president. So we're going to go through. Uh, we solicited some questions uh, from the Twitterverse. 
Uh, we're going to talk about some Penn State stuff. We're going to tr maybe try and be a little bit more vague uh, than we will a little bit later in the summer when we start going through and doing, say, offensive previews, defensive previews, those sorts of things. So to everyone who sent in questions, uh, we want to say thank you very much. We really do appreciate them, but we decided to try and condense this a little bit uh, so we can, you know, kind of keep things flowing and... Matt, I think that with Nick's move and me uh, being trapped under a rock in uh, lovely upstate New York, you were per the person best equipped to kind of answer uh, CJ Scalzetti's question. Uh, your overview of the offseason, transfer portals, misses on bigs recruits, coaching changes, uh, those sorts of things. Well, I'll, I'll try and take this in order. Um, obviously, the transfer portal was kind of the, the big news of the early part of the offseason, as it were. Um, I'm not going to even be able to remember all of the players that uh, went through that process and have moved on to, to other programs now. But for the most part, um, and there's an exception or two in there, th for the most part, the players that, that left are guys that um, were probably going to see the field this season but weren't necessarily – going to be counted on to be significant contributors. They're going to be battling for starting spots. They're going to be battling for, for kind of prime reserve roles. Um, obviously a guy like Jawan Johnson is, is the, one of the exceptions to that. But um, for the most part, the, the shocking part of, of the transfer portal situation from a Penn state perspective was probably just the sheer number. Um, but if you kind of take it in on an individual basis with each player, everyone kind of made, made sense. You'd look at a kid like Aaron Monroe that, um, I can't remember where he's off to now, but just really been surpassing the depth chart by a couple of guys. Um, Brandon Polk, same thing. There's younger players that were starting to take playing time from him last year. Um, so there's a lot of guys like that. Tommy Stevens is probably the headliner of the group. Um, and that's a, a whole situation unto itself, um, that, we may have gotten into back in the spring when it all went down. I can't remember. It was long enough ago. Um, but, but even in that, there's kind of, you know, a bit of a backstory between the injuries and Sean Clifford's relative emergence that um, it kind of made sense when you thought about it on, on a little bit deeper level. Um, I got to look back up here at the next part of that question. This is on big recruits. I think everyone knows the, the two names that are, that are most pro prominent there. Uh, Julian Fleming, the five-star receiver that's committed to Ohio state. And, uh, the five-star uh, might be the top player in the country from Maryland, Brian Breeze, who is committed to Cle uh, Clemson. Both those guys are guys that we've probably talked about on the podcast um, a, less than a year ago, probably le six months ago or less, um, as guys that Penn State was in a great position for. And it's a whole nother discussion to, to figure out what the, the, the reason is on those. Um, Fleming had some comments about um, – you know, Penn State's inability to close out big games, which is certainly a viable criticism, but there were also things like Justin Shorter not getting a lot of playing time as a freshman when it didn't really acknowledge that he was dealing with a pretty significant knee injury for most of the of the uh, the summer and in the camp. So um, certainly a disappointment on that front, especially when you've got a kid like Fleming that's from less than 100 miles away. Um, but I think from a big picture recruiting perspective, they've they've recovered pretty well. Um, they're, I think 20 or 21 recruits, something like that right now in the class. Franklin said last week that he expects to maybe get upwards of, of 30, um, aided in part by the transfer portal. Um, so it's kind of the, the overarching theme of those two, two points of, of CJ's question there, I think kind of speak to just the, 
the odd offseason that it's been, um, kind of just the lack of buzz around the program for the first time in a couple of summers, there just really hasn't been a whole lot of positive momentum, um, whether it be on the recruiting trail or um, returning talent. You know, Last year we had Trace McSorley. The year before that was the Saquon Barkley show. Um, there just really isn't anything like that from a, a big-picture perspective that you know, the, the national media or the people that don't follow the program as closely are going to grasp onto. Um, the part that I'm kind of excited about um, that CJ had touched on here is the coaching changes. Um, Jared I, Parker, the new wide receiver coach, um, I think is just a better fit um, from a just pure coaching staff personality perspective. Um, it just never felt from the outside looking in that, that David Corley really meshed with what Penn State was trying to do, what James Franklin was trying to do as far as the makeup of his, of his coaching staff. Um, and then the wide receiver play last year um, kind of speaks for itself, and whether that's all on coaching or not um, is, is certainly a, a topic for debate. But it, um, you know, it's a results-oriented business, and the results just weren't there. So that wasn't a huge surprise. And then um, probably the, the change that I think most fans are most encouraged or excited about is Joe Lord coming in <laughs> to run the special teams, which is a funny thing to say as Bill laughs at me or Nick. I can't tell who that was. Uh, maybe both of you. No, that, that, that one was me. Because, I mean – it's because you said I it. I left a, behind the mute. You said he left behind the mute, but you said it's very weird. But we kind of took for granted, I think, during the Charles Huff era, how good or not good, how solid, too good Penn State was on special teams. Uh, and what's the you know the best teams are the ones in college football, with the exception being Alabama, because Nick Saban's not allowed to have a good kicker, like. In college football, the best teams are generally the ones that take special teams as seriously as they do take their offense and their defense. And without trying to, to be too terribly mean or too terribly critical of a situation that I don't know too terribly much about internally, I think we can probably say with some amount of certainty that it's really hard to say that you took special teams as seriously as you did offense and defense when instead of going out and getting someone to replace Charles Huff, you just recruited Phil, you just promoted Phil Galliano, who wasn't exactly a special teams ace to the extent that Joe Lorig is. Well, and I, I think on top of that, um, you know, the results like like the receiver play kind of speak for themselves. Three of the four losses last year, um, special teams played a huge role in them, some bigger than others. But um, there was a missed kick in the Ohio State game. There was a, a couple special teams snafus against Michigan State, and there were you know several against Kentucky in the bowl game. And you, it's hard to win games when you're 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 at an equal talent level or, or fighting up like you are against like an Ohio state, for example, when you're, you're hurting yourself in, in a, a phase of the game that is clearly important, you know? Um, and I think the other thing that is maybe a little flies a little bit under the radar with Lorig's hire in particular is that they went out and got a guy that probably wasn't the most inexpensive option is that might be the best way to put it. And we've heard, um, Coach Franklin talked about it a ton, about the investment in the program financially and assistant coaching salaries and all that stuff. And while it's not made public at Penn State, um, it was what he was making at, uh, I believe he was at Texas Tech. He had been there for all of about six weeks when when uh, Franklin came calling and, and pried him away from the Red Raiders. 
he was making upwards of $300,000, I think, which, you know, in the world of college football coaching probably isn't a whole lot, but it's a lot for a special teams guy. And you would assume that he's making that and some at Penn State. So it's it kind of reaffirms the investment in the program from a, a high a big picture level that the money's there to go out and hire hire the right guys, um, the, the most talented people available for, for positions like that. And he's, he's said, all, said all the right things and done all the right things in the limited time we've we've been able to see what he's been up to. Um, but I've, I've seen him referred to a few places as kind of a head coach of the special teams, um, which is really, I think, what you're looking for in a coordinator at most programs is a guy who kind of just let him, let him go and do his own thing and, and, try, and trust him to, to have his, his units ready to play. And I think um, all the other changes that you're going to see, whether it be personnel or schematic or, or whatever, I think the impact he's going to have on special teams is going to have the biggest impact on Penn State's success, uh, whatever it might be this fall. Yeah, I'm unfortunate. It's unfortunate that I'm, I'm struggling to find um, Penn State's stat profile because our, you know, with our pal Bill C off to uh, off to ESPN. But I would wager uh, pretty substantial. I mean, they were fine on returns last year. Uh, punting, you know, Blake is Blake. He's going to have, you know, four out of five punts are going to be good. That fifth one is going to be spectacular. And then place kicking was a bit of an issue, but like. I will bet that it was a step back in over uh, recent years. But Nick, I want to go to you and I want to ask you before I think I think it's good if we take just, you know, 2 minutes to talk about Tommy in a second. Um, what are your thoughts on uh Warg to whatever you would want to add there and then on Gerard Parker who you know, David Corley wasn't exactly put he, it, it, he was put into a situation that he wasn't exactly hired to, but they still needed to make the change, and I think you'd agree they made a pretty good one. Yeah, I mean, it on in a on a human level. I mean, obviously, it's a shame anybody gets fired, but it it Corley got put in a pretty bad situation because he wasn't hired to be a receivers coach. Um, but obviously, Franklin had to go get Sater when he had the chance, um, and you you got to do what you, you got to do what you got to do to make that guy happy. So you got to give him the position he wants. So. It's unfortunate for Corley that it didn't work out, but clearly he wasn't suited to be a receivers coach, uh, at least not at Penn State. So, I I mean, no matter what, I think moving on from him is a net positive. Um, and some of the quotes that you've seen from training camp, guys talking about uh, the different kinds of drills that they've been doing, um, some guys saying just a greater emphasis on just catching technique and things like that. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, at, being the one who watched through all those games like three times last year to chart every Trace McSorley pass and seeing some of those seeing some of those drops that guys had like four or five times. It was pretty terrible. Um, so anything they can do to kind of put an <laughs> emphasis back on just catching the football is a good thing. Uh, and then as far as uh, as far as Lorig, I, I think you guys pretty much touched on all of it. There there was definitely more of a more of a sense that they treated special teams as a third of the a third of the game when Charles Huff was around, and it's again, I mean, it's a shame for Galliano as a human that he it wasn't the right fit, but it it kind of seemed like it it just got to crunch time and they didn't really have any other options and they really liked Galliano as a recruiter. I think he had been there for at least a couple of years on the just the recruiting side of things, so. Uh, it kind of seems like Franklin just kind of went the uh, Jim Harbaugh route and 
when Jim Harbaugh hired Chris Partridge to coach linebackers at Michigan. Uh, really just thinking about the recruiting side of things and putting him on staff so he can go on visits, home visits and things like that. So it, it, you know, it clearly, it didn't work out. Um, the, I won't blame the kicking game on him. I mean, you have a, you have a freshman, a freshman place kicker there. That's a, I mean, that's going to be a tough ask for anyone, really any, any coach in that spot. But overall, there are definitely things that need to be fixed in the special teams game. First and foremost, are really just, I think, a renewed focus on what, what it's there to do. So I think both these moves are great. I, I, the quotes we've heard, granted it's the off season, but I think the quotes we've heard about everything have been really positive and excited to see what special teams and the receivers units actually look like uh, come opening day. So I just looked at uh, the podcast feed on iTunes. We haven't done a football pod since January 10th. So, you know, I, I might uh, move a thing or two around on our agenda uh, so we can, you know, allocate a little more. I mean, we'll do probably a longer uh, thing when we preview the offense, but I think taking a second uh, so we can talk through the Tommy thing isn't the worst idea in the world. Um, Nick. You know, actually, we'll have Matt go because, you know, Matt is probably a little bit more, uh, you know, Matt mentioned the surgery stuff, uh, the one with Tommy, just like some of the general weirdness before, you know, we go to Nick for kind of the more football related stuff. So, Matt, can you just kind of give us the, you know, if someone, again, has been under a rock in over the last however many months, a brief reminder of what happened with Tommy Stevens and why he's uh, not competing for Penn State's starting quarterback job this fall. I think the story kind of goes back to spring of 2018 where he was limited by this foot injury that kind of then lingered into last fall where he wasn't available for part of training camp. Um, Obviously, we don't know how limited he was or wasn't since that sort of thing doesn't get discussed, but he obviously wasn't available for um, the first few games. He was clearly not right when he did get in against Ohio State. Um, Not to open up that wound again. Um, but he, he was clearly never healthy um, because of this foot injury um, from last spring on. And he ended up having surgery in December, stayed home from Orlando in the bowl trip to, to work on his rehab. Um, as I understand it through some of the reporting that came out after um, his transfer announcement, he actually had the surgery done by, um, I guess I'll say a personal physician for lack of a better term. It wasn't uh, one of the, the Penn State doctors from, by all accounts. Um, so who knows what role that played in it, but he was um, limited or more during spring practice again this year. And I think all that ultimately leads to um, what we saw last season. It has allowed Sean Clifford to get those reps as the number two, get those limited reps in in-game action. Um, and we all you know joked about the stats last year, but he was certainly impressive in, in what little time he did see. Um, it didn't didn't have an incomplete pass until the bowl game, and that one came on a drop pass. so, um, it opened the door for, for Clifford and I think made it certainly close enough where whether formally or informally, um, there was, there was certainly no, no promise made to Tommy Stevens and his, his camp, his family, that he was going to be the guy this fall. I think he probably still had a leg up assuming he was healthy. Um, but as a fifth year senior with, you know, one, one final chance to, to, to do this and be the guy at a, at a college football program at a major college football program um, certainly wanted to go somewhere where 
he felt like he was a better opportunity to, to be the guy and get get that chance to start. Um, and obviously, as we know now, ended up at Mississippi State back with Joe Moorhead. Um, certainly no guarantees down there that anyone's mentioned, but probably feels like a little bit more of a, a clear path given some uncertainty there with um, Nick Fitzgerald off and um, the I'm blank on his backup's name last year. Um, Keaton Thompson. So just, it, yeah, so just more of a, more of an obvious path there than there, there appeared to be at Penn State from at least an outside perspective. Um, and we know, you know, James Franklin said it last week in regards to to Sean Clifford and Will Levis that you know there's not a starter among those those guys or even the two freshmen yet. Um, I think we all kind of know that it's going to be Clifford unless something shocking happens in the next six weeks. But um, I think it was it was probably the right move for all sides. Um, certainly disappointing. I think we all wanted to see Tommy rewarded for the, his his loyalty, but um, yeah, I think the injury and, and Sean Clifford's um, emergence over the last 12, 15 months um, really kind of made it the, the right move for everyone going forward. And Nick, there's some interesting, uh, you know, we'll get maybe get into this a little bit more a little bit later in the pod, but there's an interesting kind of football thing that happens here now where... You know, this kind of it kind of goes to a question uh, that uh, Beth on Twitter asked. Do you think Franklin slash Ronnie will be able to adjust to a more pro-style quarterback if they learn from the Hackenberg situation? They kind of have to, to you know, while Clifford is not a total non-runner or anything like that, he wants to sling it, they kind of have to adjust some aspects of the offense to having a guy who is more capable with his legs, not necessarily is a runner, and has a pretty good arm, you kind of got to maximize that within the offense, no? Yeah, I think the offense is going to look different than what we've seen under Frank. Well, under Franklin since McSorley took over. But, I, I mean... Yes, Sean Clifford is going to run far less than Trace McSorley did because Trace ran a lot. But I I don't expect to see kind of the RPO offense vanish because Clifford is very athletic still, and he's easily athletic enough athletic enough to run that system. And it's not quite like Hackenberg, where if you were asking Christian Hackenberg to do a design run, you had to have been I don't know John Donovan. Exactly. It's it's. It's a lot different than that because he's fully capable of picking up the yards that are in front of him. He's not I, – I don't think we'll ever see him bust off one of those runs like Trace had against Ohio State or against Iowa. Um, and he may not even – he probably won't be as elusive near the goal line as Trace was um, if you think about kind of the, the Michigan game in 2016 or the Indiana game this past year where he's just dancing and making people look foolish around the goal line. I'm not sure we'll see that kind of stuff from Clifford, but I think he's fully capable of just getting forward and getting the yards that are there at least enough to make opposing defenses have to deal with that and have to think about that and stress the linebackers a bit. But I think you're right in that. I think the offense will be geared more towards throwing the ball. And I'm, 
I'm really interested to see what that looks like because, as you mentioned, Ricky Ronnie, he's been around since the beginning with Franklin here. So he was around for those Christian Hackenberg years um, back when he was the quarterback's coach. So they were here for kind of for that first go-around when things, I mean, things clearly didn't, they didn't work out with Hackenberg. It wasn't, the system wasn't fit to him. He wasn't fit to the system. There, there was not there was not a happy a happy marriage there between player and system. So I'm very curious to see kind of what the compromise ends up being between that system and what we saw Joe Moorhead come in and implement with Trace McSorley. Um, but like you said, I expect to see him throw more. I think that they'll probably try to do a little bit more to establish a pocket uh, whereas oftentimes Trace, they would move him to the outside or he would end up stepping up in the pocket pretty quickly. I think we might see Clifford kind of back it up in the pocket a little bit more. But I, overall, I don't think it's going to look radically different. I think it's just going to be the kind of thing where you maybe won't even realize how realize the changes until you go back and look at Trace McSorley the highlights from the past few years. Yeah, and I think... Matt, you'll agree with me on this. The big difference is going to be when you're building an offense around the strengths of Trace McSorley, you are building around different things than are the strengths of Sean Clifford. Yeah, I think um, the analogy I've had in my head, and this is this is me, dumb internet football talking fan, not football strategy X's and O's guy, Um but I kind of equate it to the change that Ohio State made from JT Barrett in 2017 to Dwayne Haskins last year. Haskins, better overall athlete than Sean Clifford, bigger arm, but it's the same kind of concept, whereas JT Barrett was very much, I don't want to say run first, but he was way more run first than Dwayne Haskins was. That's kind of the the Trace McSorley to, to Sean Clifford transition. So I think you're going to see a lot of the same concepts. If you, you watch from a big picture, you're going to see the RPO. You're going to see the read option look. You're going to see a lot of those same sorts of things. But you're going to see it done more to set up the pass, more, more running back getting the ball, probably more called run as opposed to quarterback opting to keep the run, that sort of thing. Um and Nick touched on this. This is all not to say that Sean Clifford can't run with the ball. Um, one of the things that jumped out to me when he committed to Penn State gosh, three years ago now, um, or longer, that he ran an offense that's not too dissimilar to what Penn State's running now. Um, and he he's no slouch at all running the ball. He certainly looks to throw more than or, or make the play with his arm more than, than McSorley did. I think McSorley was... Is, was and is quicker to um, tuck the ball and run, whereas Clifford's going to use his legs to buy time to make a play with his arm. But he's not not going to avoid tucking the ball and running when it calls for it. I think he's certainly capable of it. He's he's more athletic than I think he, he's given credit for, just because I think most fans haven't seen that. So he, he has that in his toolkit, but it's just not not the number one tool he's going to go to. Yeah, I mean, the bit, basically what it comes down to is last year Trace threw the ball 328 times and ran it 151. The year before, 427 throws, 144 runs. 
the year before that, the year they won the Big Ten, 358 throws, 140 runs. That ratio is probably going to be a bit more one-sided. And, you know, when you look at the receiving talent that Penn State has, it, you know, it's a lot of it's a lot of raw and generally unproven talent, but there is still talent there. You want to be able to get those guys the football. When you look at the running backs that they have, you know, outside of really uh, Noah Kane, and I guess Journey Brown to an extent, Ricky Slade is a good catcher of the football. Devin Ford, we think, is going to be a pretty good catcher of the football. You're going to want to try and get those guys into situations in space where you get it to them instead of hand it off and say run between the tackles. Although that'll certainly pop up in the event that they do it. so I, I think one more thing that, as you mentioned there, Bill, is there's a stable of running backs that I think the staff has trust in. And, and Ricky Ronnie alluded to this in an interview with um, Audrey Snyder of The Athletic a couple weeks ago, that whoever's in the backfield with, I'm going to assume Sean Clifford is the quarterback, they're not going to really have to change their the way they call the game by, by all indications. And I think you're going to see more of a willingness to rotate guys this year because they don't have a Saquon Barkley or Miles Sanders. So I think some of those carries that went to Trace McSorley because they needed someone else other than Miles Sanders to carry the ball last year, and you're going to see those go to you know, the second or third running back or even the fourth guy potentially if Devin Ford is in there. So I'm not sure that the passing numbers necessarily are going to you know, go up to, to 400 or 450 on the season, but I I think the the quarterback runs will drop, but the runs by running backs presumably are going to go up Very just because they're going to have have a few more options back there. Very fair, and I think this is a good segue into a question from uh, our pal Devin, who, um, as those of you who know our pal Devin, uh, know you won't be surprised by this question: How long does Ricky Roddy one have and two deserve? And I'll take this one to start. The answer is I have no idea. Um, it's all about expectations, and I certainly understand the argument uh, that if you're trying, I'm going to reference something that absolutely no one on earth likes mentioning, if you're going to make that jump to become an elite program, you can't wait for the offensive coordinator to catch up. So, I don't know, maybe at the end of the year, they're still waiting for Ricky Ron, they're waiting for Ricky Ronnie to become a full-blown uh, Big Ten, you know, high Division One offensive coordinator. And at that point, James Franklin has to answer a really hard question. Or maybe at the end of the year that you see the very positive steps forward with an offense that we talk about how much talent there is this year. Well, basically everyone except for like one or two offensive linemen come back next year. If they take a big step forward, it's really hard for me to – justify firing him so it's it's a tough question it's one that i don't think we can answer and i'm interested in hearing your thoughts on this nick it's something that i don't think we can quite answer uh you know six weeks before the ball is snapped yeah i mean if he if he goes out and lays an egg i feel pretty comfortable saying that franklin will move on from him um but i i i think you're right i think if there's if there is progress if this if this is a better looking offensive team than it was last year and i I know that's weird to say because for a while they were averaging so many points but they kind of especially once mcsorley got hurt and they started to lack consistency if they can be a consistent offensive team with what they have returning at offensive line the year after with 
Sean Clifford obviously going to be back for a year after with most of the most of if not nearly all of the receiving core set to be back the year after uh, Pat Frymouth, uh, Zach Kuhn set to be back the year after it's it's basically going to be the same team so if you if you're showing progress and there's consistent improvement throughout the year and there's some amount of consistency I do agree that it would be a difficult and probably too difficult of a choice to move on from him even if you didn't get quite the results you wanted just for the sake of having a guy in there that understands what he has with this current team so i do agree with that i think if he if if they find that if they show that progress if they find that consistency i think he'll be back um but i think that if if they just go if they go out there and they're unable to move the ball the way they need to on offense i i I don't have a hard time seeing seeing them move on from him. I think it would be a difficult choice for Franklin because I what Ronnie's been with him since day one at Vanderbilt, hasn't he? I mean, he's been with him pretty much his entire career. He was at his wedding. They go yeah, yeah. Clearly, they're very they're very close. But um, so I guess that would be a pretty interesting case study. To I I I know I've I've floated this idea with Matt a bit, talking about um, trying to put together some sort of some story it would involve some interviews and whatnot, but trying to find the play like what kind of place loyalty has in college football, whether it comes to coaches or recruiting and things like that. Um, I, but yes, yeah, so I, I, that's kind of what it boils down to me. I think if they if they show any if they show a, if they show positive steps, even if it's not there right away, if they're building towards something better by the end of the year, I think he's back. Yeah, I mean, Franklin basically has to weigh: is it worth firing? him and looking for a replacement and hoping you can get Joe Moore, you know, the next Joe Moorhead versus, you know, your third offensive coordinator in four years. Um, how, how that looks, especially if uh, the guy who is taking over the offense in Ann Arbor um, is as good as they think he's going to be up there when he was on your staff and didn't get promoted for, like, it's all this weird Outside of just the pure football stuff, there's all this other weird stuff that is kind of hanging over it that, again, Matt, I think it's really hard to project out a yes or a no. You know, I think it's really hard to put um, how long does he have, how long does he deserve into numbers at this point. Yeah, and I, I think the the easy way to answer that question, you know, both parts of it is I think he, in my opinion, deserves at least this year, and I think he'll get this year. And you reevaluate it at the end of the year and see how things go. Now, like Nick said, if they're you know sitting you know the week after the Iowa game and they're you know four and two or something and they've looked terrible and they're just all out of set sorts, and I think it's a fair question to ask. I have a hard time seeing um, just as as loyal as James Franklin is as a as a person, forget as a football coach, making a change that significant during the middle of the season, unless things have just gone totally sideways. Um, but I, I've talked a lot this, this off season, just kind of casually with you guys, with other friends that results aside, I think the most important thing for Penn state to do, and we talked about this going into the 2016 season. It's one of those weird parallels um, between that year and this year is the offense needs to look like it knows what it's doing. I think, the the struggles with with John Donovan in 2014 and 15 aside, the offense just looked out of sorts. You know there there were just you know a litany of problems that that were not improving at all. 
And I think going into that 2016 season, we talked a lot about they don't need to win the Big Ten and win 11 games and all this stuff. They need to look like they they, they have a plan on offense. And I think it's kind of the, the same general bar going into this season. I think the bar's higher, but um, I mean – they could they could be significantly improved, and because of you know who's on the schedule and where they're playing them, they could still lose a couple games or more. Um, even be, even being better and and being more proficient on that side of the ball. So, um, it's it's like you said, Bill. It's a real hard question to answer on July twenty fourth when this goes goes live. You know what what's the 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 bar for Ricky Ronnie and and, and what's the timeline for it? I will say this. If the defense is as good as advertised, and I think all of us agree the defense is as good as advertised, and you know I'm looking at say that game at Iowa, and that defense only allows 14 points and they don't win that game, or uh, that game against Michigan or Michigan State if it's another thing you know 14 to 21 points and they don't win that game, that's going to be tough. Uh, but uh, we don't know that, and I think the only way to follow up um, these kind of th- that kind of somewhat more bleak, somewhat more vague answer to the question is uh, to go to uh, my pal and fellow. I think you should leave. Watcher, have you guys seen? I think you should leave. Have I have not. not. You should watch it with your significant others, and when they get weirded out by it, tell them that Bill told you to watch it, and everything will make sense. Uh, that's a that's an endorsement I say to all listeners of this podcast. But from Lemon Tree Records, why am I so confident that this will be the most successful season since, since 2016? And I really think it comes down to the fact that you, if you believe that James Franklin's best attribute is his ability as a recruiter. And over the last two, three, four years, he has taken Penn State to a new level in recruiting. This is the year where that sort of thing really pays off. I'm just going to leave it at that. And then Matt, Nick, whichever one of you kind of wants to pick it up from there. That's just kind of, I think, the overarching thing that provides optimism heading into 2019. I can go. Um, I think if you if you're if you're so confident that this will be the most successful season since 2016, I think it's also because you you're kind of digging on that you're digging on that underdog card. You're, I mean, you're. It's a lot of people. I mean, you've seen the preseason polls and the Big Ten previews and whatnot, and there's a fair number of people out there that are fully predicting Penn State to be the fourth best team in the division behind Ohio State, Michigan, and Michigan State. And I, I, I think those of us that follow Penn State, I think most of, most of you out there would probably agree that that seems pretty egregious to be behind Michigan State because Penn State clearly has more talent than them. But this is, I mean, this is really the first time since 2016 that Franklin, the Franklin coached Penn State team has had a chance to be that underdog. And granted, I'm not saying they're going to be an underdog in every game. They're still going to be huge favorites against uh, the non-con and Rutgers and Indiana and Maryland and all that. But this is this is kind of getting a little bit back to the roots of what made James Franklin such a popular coach throughout the country um, before he got to Penn State, at least. Uh, that he played that underdog card so well at Vanderbilt and that 2016 Penn State team that no one really expected much of. 
until that Ohio State win, that that's really the last chance we had to see that. Uh, all season long, it kind of felt you kind of got that sense of we weren't supposed to be here, but here we are, and we're going to make some noise. And that's what it feels like this year. I mean, they lost they they lost Trace McSorley. They lost their heartbeat for the last three years. Uh, Saquon Barkley's a couple years gone now. They lost Miles Sanders last year. They um, can, uh, continued to have a few more uh, coaching changes that we've talked about. So there's a lot of new pieces, a lot of new faces on the offense, um, and some new faces on the defense. So this is they're, they're really this is the the most air of underdog feeling they've had in a few years and. As a college football fan, unless you're Alabama or Clemson or Ohio State, I think that's usually when you I, – I, I feel like that's when you usually feel confident. It's when you feel like people are underestimating you. So uh, in my mind, that's, that's probably why you feel – that's probably why you feel successful, loyal yeah. listener. Yeah, it or sorry, be, confident, confident, not successful. It, it Although would, I hope you feel successful. Yeah, we, I, we uh, hope for – you know, unless you're a terrible person, we hope for nothing but success and happiness for all of our listeners. But yeah, the thought of James Franklin going back to being Vanderbilt scoundrel James Franklin is—it's an exciting one, and it's one that I don't think any of us would uh, be upset about. But Matt, going over to you, where if you were to be very, very confident in the team this year, where would that stem from? Oh, I think you touched on it briefly, wrapping up the last last talking point was the defense. Um, this is, I think without question in the now, this is what season number five, six for James Franklin. How long has it been? Um, this is year five that this is unquestionably Maybe six, the best. Yeah, shit, yeah. This is, geez, we've, we're getting old bill. Uh, All <laughs> of these lines across my face. Sorry. Please edit that one out. That that we don't need that. No, nope. I mean, listen. Every uh, once in a while, we, we need more Brandy Carlisle on the pod, and also I'm not going <laughs> to throw away a good tape. But 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 to back to the the question at hand, um, I think this is unquestionably the best defense that that James Franklin's had in terms of just raw talent. Um, you know, certainly they'll have to prove it on the field, but. Um, you know, the talent at defensive end with Itor Grossmato, Shaka Tony, um, Shane Simmons, if he's healthy, Jason Owe, um, Adia Isaac, um, there's, I can go on and on. Um, Robert Windsor, I think, um, really showed the, the second half of last year what he's capable of. There's guys like um, P.J. Mustafer at, at tackle that um, young but, but talented. Um, you know, a linebacker core that features Micah Parsons is always going to be um, – be considered at, at a high level. I think he's got some steps to take, but um, what he did last year as a true freshman and really 50% of the, the defensive snaps while learning the linebacker position was, was impressive. And one of the things that's really jumped out to me about him in particular this off season is I think he's kind of taken on that, that leadership role um, is, you know, we're good and we know it kind of thing. I think you, you need a little bit of that, that swagger, a little bit of that ego, um, when you're, when you have the kind of talent they have back there, um, you know, Tariq Castro fields and John Reed at, at cornerback, Garrett Taylor at safety. Um, they've got, you know, a handful of guys, Jaquan Brisker, Lamont Wade, Jonathan Sutherland that are vying for that second safety spot. Um, there, that's just a really, really talented defense. So I think that's, that's what you're going to hang your hat on. And I think the other thing is 
because of that defense and the way the schedule sets up over the first five or six weeks of the season allows the offense to kind of get their feet under them against the schedule that appears on paper to be pretty manageable. Um, and they've got that defense to kind of re- lean on a little bit um, early on in the year. Um, and, and the other thing is, and I, I talk about this all the time, every chance we, we get to do one of these, and you touched on it too, Bill, is recruiting. This is top to bottom the most talented roster that Penn State's had in 15 years or more, 10 years or more, Ever. something like that. Um, well, I'm not going to say ever, but in, in, in the recruiting era, it certainly is. Um, you know, I crunched the numbers not too long ago, just kind of out of curiosity, and they're at about 60% of the rosters, four or five-star recruits. And they're, in a lot of cases, kids that have been on campus for two or three years now or more. And that that combination of talent and experience, um, both on-field experience and just physical maturity, is is so big. Um but especially on the lines where they they're going to have a lot of it. So, um, and then what Nick said, I think that the underdog role suits James Franklin really well. Um, you look at 2016 was really the first time that I think we can all really agree that there were legit concerns about where the program was going and all he did, you know, from the second half against Minnesota on that year was rattle off, you know, nine straight wins in a big 10 championship and damn near pulled off a Rose bowl. That <laughs> was just, you know, a hell of a game on all sorts of levels. And I think he thrives on, on that. He that's was the key to his success at Vanderbilt. Um, he rode that to a big 10 championship not that long ago. And I think um, they're, they're kind of back in that same, same mindset where no one really expects a whole lot of them, you know, first time starting quarterback, you know, who's going to, you know, new running back, you know, all these guys left the program, you know, you know, is, is James Franklin really the guy? And he's answered that question quite a bit in his career. And, um, it's, it's going to be exciting going into this year. We're going to talk more about the specifics in our preview pods coming up next month, but, um, there's, there's, those are some pretty good reasons to be optimistic. I think since we talked about 2016, can I digress for a moment? Yeah, go ahead. It still bothers me every time I think about 2016. The first thing I think about, well, the first off thing, off field thing I think about is uh, his speech after the Big Ten championship. It still to this day bothers me when he's when he's like addressing the committee, basically. Yeah. It still bothers me that the end of that speech he goes, "It's your move, the committee." Why did he say <laughs> the? Why did he have to say the? It, it's it's like like the Ohio State University, Nick. It, it's it's the okay. college football playoff committee. It, it's, it's so hold, hold on, hold on. Great, it rates my brain every time I think about it. Maybe that's why they didn't get in. Matt, what what did Do- Jim Delaney say this week? I was just. It, it, oh, I, it, like, it, even by like Jim Delaney's standard, it was like, okay, we get it. Like you re- Jim Delaney very obviously, um, you know, I don't okay, know. Okay, what I, I found, oh, I, I was oh, able to, to go back really quickly here. Um, there's a couple ones. One, Jim Delaney says the college football playoff selection committee should pay more attention to strength of schedule and conference championships. <laughs> and, and, and the other one, this is the one that this is, this is just mind numbingly stupid. But he referred to last year's Ohio State team. I don't still know how Ohio State was ranked six last year. By the way, they were ranked six behind a divisional runner-up. Okay, <laughs> then they're fifth. They're still not in. No, oh, and we really care that much. And then, in, oh man, he is going to do something real bad 
uh, in the back of his trousers when he finds out where his champion finished in 2016 behind a divisional mm. runner-up. He made a lot of people a lot of money and, and has, has advanced yeah. oh. Big Ten athletics in a, in a lot of positive ways, but man, does he say some really stupid things. Yeah, when Delaney decides to really lean in, he, ooh, yeah, does he lean in. But I, I'm sure it wasn't at the forefront of his mind that uh, he was actively a grieving Penn State fans, but I'm sure someone told him about him after, and then, you, you know, before he went into his... Uh, before he went into his coffin to rest for a thousand years without light, he was happy. Uh, let's uh, kind of wrap it up with a few more quick hitter type things. Uh, I think we'll start, uh, you know, that one. Uh, Penfal 2-5. What position this season are we going to look back on and be like that? This was the position group on the team by far. Uh, Matt, I think, uh, just kind of gave us a glimpse into your answer, but you just mentioned that he... You, you you believe is the defensive line, correct? Yeah, and specifically the defensive ends. I think there's just yeah. so much talent there. I think they can go probably six deep in certain situations and not see a huge drop-off other than from a guy like Gross Matos. But um, there's there's a lot of guys that, if they're healthy, and that's, that's the Shane Simmons qualifier, um, can be really, really good. Uh, Nick, what is, uh, what's your answer on this one? Um... I kind of I, I want to say the receivers. I don't know if that because the question was under the radar, wasn't it? Uh, this one was uh, what position this season are we going to look back on and be like this was the best position group on the team by far? Under the radar, yes. we'll get to in a sec. Don't worry. So I get I guess that kind of implies that we're I don't know I guess that doesn't really imply that we're not looking at them now as a good group. But yeah, I, I since I mean the my first answer would be the defensive ends as well, but. For the sake of different differing opinions, I'll take the receivers because if Justin Shorter is able to break out, uh, we already saw Jahan Dotson kind of begin to break out, and obviously KJ Hamler's KJ Hamler. So the receivers, I think, could be this could be a pretty special group of receivers. I don't know what it is. You know, it's probably just a lot because of who the young guys are at the group. But I'm really, really interested in the linebackers because as I'm looking talked, as I'm looking talked about Jan Johnson, we know what he is. Um, he's he, he's a perfectly steady hand. You know, he's not he's going to have his trouble against more athletic dudes, but he's gonna he, he should be okay. He'll know where to be. It's he it's that he's like what yeah. Paz was what in Jacksonville. Oh, thank God. I thought you were going to say Nick Com. I was going to say, Nick, if you're saying he's like Paz, we're going to need to stop this. No, project. he's like he's Jacksonville Paz. No, he's, he's Brandon Smith from 2017, where Brandon Smith was never, uh, you know, he was never a game changer, but he always knew exactly where to be, and he was good at tackling, like that sort of thing. You have Cam Brown, who um, we'll say he's uh, taken a few knocks over the years. But also, real quick, kudos to us for comparing Jan Johnson to two other white middle linebackers. <laughs> so back to Cam Brown for a sec. He's, <laughs> he's had his ups and downs over the years, but there, there's something he had, there's a swagger and a confidence about him this off season that, you know, maybe it doesn't translate to the field, but if it does translate to the field, his length, his athleticism, it's there. And he, it just, again, he just needs to be able to put that into practice but at the same time, I don't think he's going to be, you know, 
he'll be better than like Koa Farmer was. Like he'll be, I, I think he can be at the very least a net neutral at linebacker. And then you look at the other guys they have in this linebacking group. Micah Parsons is already being put on just about every watch list you could be put on. Ellis Brooks isn't, He's like he does the be in every position thing, except he's has the athleticism and he has that sort of thing to kind of compensate for some of that stuff. Brandon Smith, by all accounts, is just a damn nuke. And if he's able to put it together, he's going to be playing a lot of football early on. Jesse Lukita is probably a really good thing if he takes snaps away from Jan Johnson. Not because of anything Johnson doesn't do, but because of what that means for a guy like Lukita. And then Lance Dixon, another guy who just seems like a freak of nature. Maybe, you know, maybe Charlie Catcher gives him something, that kind of thing. There's a lot of talent there. And I think that if they're able to turn that talent into production, again, I'd probably agree with Matt on defensive line, specifically defensive end. But if that linebacker group can produce close to the level of what it can produce at, we're going to be talking about a really special group in the middle of that defense. Uh, moving on, we'll do... I'm going to be really happy for him when he gets drafted, but it's I'm going to be really frustrated when Cam Brown gets drafted. Oh, well, he he's yeah, he does seem like one of those dudes who's going to just like annihilate the combine and go to a team in the sixth round that believes they could like develop him. Yeah, that sounds Yeah, he'll right. be like a seventh round like special teams ace. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, he's... He's a guy that it's very. I've weird been so frustrated with him for four years. I, I can't. Ugh. I like how now that you're not a teacher anymore, you're like more willing to just rip off these takes. I, I my interest <laughs> in him basically stems from the fact that I, he there's just something about how every time we've seen him this summer, there's a confidence about him. It seems like he wants to take on some kind of a leadership role. And if he can develop from where he's been, maybe he can give them something really, really. I, he maybe he can give them something good. I won't go as far as to predict that, but I think he has that in him. And if he's again, if he can, great. If not, there's talent in the wings that I think can start as the year goes on, taking some snaps off of him, and maybe by the end of the year, have him be a fourth or a fifth linebacker. Uh, let's go with, yeah, we just mentioned, uh, we just mentioned Brandon Smith. So why not go to the, this question from Natty Fran? All, who is the under the radar player that no one is talking about who will quietly have a really good year, i.e. Brandon Smith in 2017? I have a very, um, hot takey answer to this. So I would, Ooh. so I, I, I seed before, uh, to Nick to hear what he has to say. Um, under the radar player, I, I don't know. My, I, hmm. I, I can't really, I'm not really sure who in the starting lineup. I feel like everyone's been pretty well publicized. I mean, I, I, my first, honestly, my first thought was to say Garrett Taylor. I know that's a weird answer because he's been, very, he was excellent last year, and he's he's been somebody who's been on people's minds. But I think he's he's somewhat fallen to the wayside. I mean, with all the Micah hype and all the Utah Gross Mottos. I mean, do you guys agree? Do you feel like you've been hearing Gary Taylor's name less than you should? 
Yeah, it was actually one of the names when I saw this question earlier that kind of came to mind. He's not my answer, but he's I certainly someone who's on the radar to be off the radar, if that makes sense. Yeah, that he's yeah. I mean, so I guess yeah, I guess Garrett Taylor's my answer. I mean, he he was he really was excellent last year. I don't think people really realize how great he was, um, and I think with an improved defense in front of him and even more pressure being put on opposing quarterbacks, I think he could be in store for a really, really special year. And we already know how good of an athlete he is. So he could definitely be someone who ends up being a pretty, a pretty high profile, uh, potential NFL draft pick too. So I'll, I'll, I'll go Garrett Taylor. Uh, Matt, what about yourself? I don't know if this, I'm like, Nick, I don't know if this qualifies as off the radar, but I feel we've kind of forgotten that Shane Simmons is still here. And by all accounts, seems to be healthy, and that's that's the million dollar question: is if <laughs> if he's healthy. But at the end of his freshman year, or redshirt freshman year, he really started to to show flashes of that four high four, low five star talent. And then he really dealt with the foot injury all of last year. And if if he's healthy, I think because he's been a name that we've known about for so long, that we've kind of just he's kind of been passed by guys like Jason Owe or Eter Grossmatos um, for one reason or other. In Grossmatos' case, obviously, the, the insane year he had last year in OA with the, the big offseason and the, the freakish testing numbers. Um, but he's a guy that, again, I, I'm going to qualify it for the 100th time if he's healthy, I think can really be a, a, a difference maker um, because he can be that every down kind of defensive end. And if you have him on one side and Grossmatos on the other, then all of a sudden you're bookending a, a pretty fearsome defensive line, regardless of who's who's playing in the middle. Lamont Wade. I hello. Hell, See, yeah. I've thought about him, but he's, he well, I, he's uh, what, what he's under the radar in a football sense. Well, yeah, I mean that's not uh, in a news sense. Part of the question. Six of, but, it, but, I, I don't both of them. But he's one of the names you've heard most this offseason. Well, that that's because he was going to transfer. He answered the transfer portal. I, well, it's yeah. not because of what he is as a football player. And my argument with Lamont Wade is that I think we all um, we all recognize that he has talent. I think as a true freshman, being thrown into being a Big Ten cornerback at five nine and you know, 190 pounds, whatever he was. That's a big ask, and it understandably led to him struggling. I think last year he got moved to safety, and learning a new position is, you know, even if it's something where, you know, a lot of the same principles apply between safety and corner, that's still a really, really hard thing to do. And with them looking for that second cornerback next to uh, Garrett Taylor, and there's no real clear-cut answers to who's going to be. Maybe Jaquan Brisker gets it. Maybe Jonathan Sutherland gets it. But there's a, there is an opportunity for Lamont Wade right there. And if he can take it, and he is... You, I, we saw with Taylor. When Garrett Taylor, his first year at safety, he had some pretty serious growing pains. It took him a year to kind of get that down, and we started to see him succeed. I'd succeed. I don't know if Lamont Wade's going to be that same type of guy. But I'm going to bet on it because I'm going to bet on the talent. And I think that talent, you know, on a long enough uh, time span is what you kind of have to rely on. So he's the guy that 
I think he has the potential to be a really, really, really good football player. And I think that we haven't gotten a chance to see what he is as a football player quite yet. And this is kind of put up or shut up time for him. So I'm I'm going to bet on him. And I'm going to think that this is the year, this is where we start seeing the promise uh, that came from Lamont Wade, you know, being a top 50 kid, being a high four-star, pushing five-star kid, being the number one recruit in Pennsylvania, being someone who, you know, we were following every single thing that he did in recruiting because that's the kind of guy he had the potential to be. Well, now it's time and it's time for him to kind of put up or shut up. And I think he's going to answer that challenge. I do want to, uh, because we all said someone on defense, uh, I am going to ask that we turn it over to the offensive side of the ball really quick. We don't have to go into big answers for this, but just if you were to pick someone on offense uh, who you think is a little under the radar, you know, in one or two words, who would you pick, Matt? Uh, Will Fries. Will Fries, Matt, uh, Nick. What about you? I'll go with Journey Brown. And uh, give me Weston Carr. Uh, mm, good one. That's a solid answer, Bill. Weston Carr. Daniel George is also curious to me, but I, I you know, I'll go with Weston Carr just because you know what. We'll, we'll, sh- we'll show some love to the old guys uh, on here. Last question uh, from Dave Ray. Who is or are your pick or picks for a player who is not projected to start in the first part of the year but will play themselves into a starting role? Um, you know, that question is a little bit tough just because we don't have um, – First part of the year. We Yeah, we don't have a depth chart. We don't quite know what that's going to be. We can probably guess with some understanding. So I am going to change it up slightly. Uh, Dave, if uh, you ever meet me, I owe you one beer. Who's going to be the guy who basically plays his way into being unable to be, unable to be taken off the field as the year goes on? Not Even if, you know... Player A is starting, player B is getting, you know, really cutting into their snaps over the course of the season, Nick. I say uh, PJ Mustafer, Mustafer. How is it pronounced? I believe it's Mustafer. I, I think Mustafer, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I say PJ Mustafer. Um, yeah, I think he, for a freshman last year, I think what he, what he was able to show in just limited time, I think was pretty impressive considering his age. And I... I am not sold on the defensive tackles that Penn State currently has at the top of the depth chart. Uh, I, I think Robert Windsor has a lot of good potential, but I actually almost, I, f- I forget who was talking about him before, but I almost stopped you because you were listing off names, I think, of players who were set to have good seasons or maybe something like that, and you said, Robert Windsor, maybe. And in my mind, I was like, Robert Windsor, maybe. That's like the perfect encapsulation of who of who Robert Windsor is as a player. Um I mean, if he can stop jumping off sides, that'd be great, and maybe he'll finally kind of reach that full potential. But I'm not, I'm not, still not totally sold on him. I'm definitely not sold on Antonio Shelton. Um, so yeah, I'll say, I'll say PJ. Matt, I am going with my my man crush from the the 2019 recruiting class, Lance Dixon. Um, this is a kid that started as a relatively run of the mill four star player who played his way into, um, at least on 24-7, a five-star player. I think he was number 25 or something in the country by the end of the season. Um, just a, a a freak athlete. I think he probably, 
it almost has a little Micah Parsons in him from last year where he's probably more athlete than football player and trying to figure out how to, you know, all the nuances of playing linebacker. But, um, you know, the, the question being who's the guy that's going to play their way and just, and keep themselves on the field by, by their play. I think he's kind of the poster child for me of that guy that's just not going to, he's, he's going to make the decision for the coaching staff as far as finding a way to get him on the field. I think it'll start as special teams, but, um, assuming he can kind of get some of the nuances of, of playing linebacker down and harness a little bit of that, that raw athleticism, the, the sky's the limit for him. I think he's, he was probably the guy in the, the recruiting class who I was most excited about from a, a long-term perspective. And, um, by all accounts, he hasn't, hasn't disappointed since he's been on campus since January. And, um, there's, there's going to be some opportunities at linebacker, I think, uh, especially as the year goes on and, um, you know, different situations present themselves that uh, he, he's a guy that I think we should all keep an eye on. I, I, I do have my actual answer that I'll get to a sec, in a sec, but like you mentioned there, I think Jesse Lukiat is another guy to kind of keep your eye on uh, just because there aren't, <laughs> there aren't many 6'3", 200, nearly 250-pound uh, middle linebacker types who also mix – Jesse Lukita's athleticism, Jesse Lukita's uh, versatility, that sort of stuff. So he's a guy I'm going to pay attention to as the year goes on, especially because, you know, we mentioned Brandon Smith's, uh, not Brandon Smith, wow, that's, he's a child, I feel bad. Uh, Jan Johnson's kind of physical deficiencies that might keep him from being an impact player. But the guy that I'm looking at, and I'm glad that uh, Matt said his man crush in the recruiting class, because I'm going to say the exact same thing as Noah Kane. Because I think the way the smart way for Penn State to handle its running back core this year is to kind of it's to spread the love. It's to you know here's where we give Ricky opportunity. Here's where we give Journey opportunities. Noah Kane of the group is the guy who you give him the football and he is just a wrecking ball and wears a defense down. And I think that's something you really really need when you know you have Ricky Slade and Journey Brown, the game breaking tight backs. You need that guy who can keep defenses honest, the guy who can lower his shoulders and get you four yards on a carry. I was speaking to a, a friend, his name's Patrick Mayhorn, he's with uh, Land Grant Holy Land, uh, sorry to 11 Warriors if I just uh, got involved in a turf war or something like that, but uh, I don't care. And he watched Penn State's spring game, and he was he said of basically the guys out there, Noah Kane was the guy who impressed him the most, and it's all the stuff that we talk about him all the time. He has a nasty streak to him. He has a hyper-competitive streak. He's go- the kind of guy who's going to go in there day in and day out and just think he's better than everybody else in his backfield because that's just how he's wired. And I think he's going to be the kind of guy, especially getting on campus as early as he did, he's going to be competing and he's going to be fighting for opportunities. And he's the kind of guy who's just not used to losing fights when they pop up. So I'm really interested in what he's going to be as the year goes on. Cause I think we all agree. Ricky Slade, journey Brown are the guys you're going to be starting the year with. And as you fold in Kane and as you fold in Ford, I don't want to say fold Ford is repetitive with those other two, but Kane is able to just do stuff that the other three, it's not necessarily their biggest strength. So I'm really interested in him. 
And I'm on the whole just really interested to see how this season's going to go. Uh, we're going to be here giving you preview stuff over the next couple of weeks, uh, getting prepared for one of the more intriguing and up-in-the-air Penn State football seasons uh, that I think we had in some time just because nobody has a good read on exactly what's going to happen. Any, any final things that either of you guys want to say before we end it? Podcast is back, baby. Yes, go, go, blog, football, radio, roar, lion, roar. Uh, yeah, uh, since that's like ninety percent of the buy off, but uh, sign off. Uh, go buy some shirts, please. Do that. We still have them, and they're still very comfortable. New shirts coming soon. Uh, uh, we here at Roar Lions Roar LLC do not endorse anything that Nick just said. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of the podcast. For my co-host Nick Polak. And Matt DeBear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.